0: you are looking for ways to sort of distract your mind from the environment you're in, whether that be picturing yourself in a different environment, uh, just visualization techniques, or what I've started to do more recently is when I'm doing long runs, I'll put them on a track and then I'll just envision like, what is it like to run like a 30 mile section of this race and just kind of go through those mental paces. So then on race day, I kind of have that dress rehearsal in my head that I can sort of set on autopilot more or less.
1: If you are constantly worried about getting injured or you don't know how to get faster as a runner and you want to continue to run for stress relief, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to Healthy Runner, the only place that provides you with training tips injury recovery and prevention tools with actionable strategies by experts in the running industry so you can develop a stronger running body and feel confident that you can overcome any obstacle as a runner. I'm your host, Dr. Dwayne Scotty, avid runner, running physical therapist and coach, educator, founder of Spark Healthy Runner, where we help dedicated runners get stronger, run faster, and enjoy lifelong injury-free running with the perfect online running coach, even if you've been told to stop running with an injury or you think coaching is just for fast runners. Learn more about our signature coaching program at learn.sparkhealthyrunner.com Every week, we help a runner just like you learn how to consistently get in your mental clearing miles and even hit PRs well into your 40s, 50s, and beyond. Make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcast or follow the show on Spotify so you don't miss the next episode. Thanks for joining me. Now on to the show. Most runners spend an enormous amount of time not running for one reason they keep getting injured. Now imagine if you could have the structure of exactly what exercises, how much to run, and what you should be eating to get faster as a runner. Spark off your winter running with a four-month strong body transformation. This is one-on-one individualized healthy runner coaching to grow a stronger, injury-free body so you can run for stress relief all winter long. What will you get by the end of the 16 weeks? A strong running body so you can actually feel confident, healthy, and running faster this spring, even if you don't think you're a fast runner. Oh, and did I mention? This will also take away your worry of getting injured. Spots are limited, so apply using the link in the show notes before they run away. Have you struggled with keeping your feet healthy as a runner? Whether it's been plantar fasciitis, posterior tibial tendonitis, Achilles pain, or you may have even had a stress fracture. Welcome to episode one. 54 on the Healthy Runner podcast, where we help you get stronger, run faster, and enjoy lifelong injury-free running. Today, I get to chat with a legend in the ultramarathon community. Zach Bitter is here. He is a professional endurance athlete, coach, and host of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Zach, thank you so much for being willing to share your ultra-running experience on the show today.
0: Absolutely, Dwayne. Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, guys. So, in this episode, Zach is going to really uh, share his best tips um, on how you can keep your feet healthy uh, for running. So, Zach, on the show, we always start with a little dynamic warm up like we would before our runs. Uh, so, I guess, first off, can you tell the listeners, you know, where do you call home?
0: Yeah. So, my wife and I moved to Austin, Texas uh, around this time last year, actually. So, we're coming up on our one year Austin, Texas anniversary. Previously, we were in Phoenix for about four years, though, so um, I've been all over the place. I guess I grew up in Wisconsin, lived there for about 20 years, was in kind of Northern California for three years before Phoenix, and then now Austin, so I'm sort of circumnavigating the United States, but uh, Nicole, my wife, said, yeah, we're not doing the other half of that circle, so get comfortable.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's had, it, she's had enough of uh, moving around there, and yeah. I, I think I did see you ran at Wisconsin, right?
0: Yeah, UW Stevens Point. So um, Wisconsin has obviously the big university with you in Madison it has a great cross country and track program there, and then there's a really competitive D three set of programs actually in the WEAC conference, and UW Stevens Point is one of them. So I was fortunate to be able to learn a lot about running through that experience.
1: Cool. Yeah. And how did um, you know that running journey begin? When when did that start
0: for you? Yeah, so I got into running in middle school. I was introduced through the Presidential Physical Fitness Challenge. I was kind of the first time I realized that, like, you were there's different aspects to being athletic. It wasn't just like you're either good or bad. <laughs> and I also learned that, like, yeah, you can be quite poor at one side of things, but quite good at the other. So, my when things balanced out between what I guess that test is supposed to assess, running was my strength, distance running specifically. So, uh, I got a little bit curious about like what the opportunities were to kind of uh, use that sport or participate in that sport, and that kind of led to like middle school uh, track and field day type stuff. Eventually, in high school, I did a track and cross country, and uh, ultimately ended up running uh, at University of Wisconsin Stevens Point. And yeah, I would say my trajectory was quite slow in the sense that I didn't take it like overly seriously early on. I was never like a year round runner or a high mileage runner in high school. It wasn't until I was introduced to the program at UW Stevens point that I even recognized how far people actually run in a week when they're taking the sport seriously. So, um, yeah, I think some of that maybe has to do with, uh, or some of the reason why I still love running today is partly because I didn't necessarily get thrust into it and have all these expectations that were either, um, beyond what I should have had or, uh, or just, you know, kind of burnt myself out in it in the early days. And, um, I think about that a lot. Yeah.
1: And I, I think there's definitely something to be said about that. Um, cause I know I've seen, uh, definitely a lot of collegiate, uh, runners and athletes who, you know, the first thing when I follow up with them in like a year or two, they're like, Oh, how's your running going? And they're like, I'm not running. Like mm-hmm. they got totally burned out and they just take like a couple of years off usually before they start getting back into it and actually like enjoying it. Um, now for someone, so I'm an adult onset runner, I call myself, started running uh, age 32. You know, is it common for someone in college to actually do both cross country and track or the, it just depends upon like the program where, you know, you will have your like specialties?
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, I would say, like, in most cases, middle distance and up is probably going to be doing cross country. And then uh, they'll just be the distance squad or the middle distance squad. So, like, our cross country team was made up of essentially like 800 meter runners to the 10K guys and gals. So, and then everything in between. And uh, there is a lot of variance within that as well. But uh, yeah, I think that's probably pretty typical. Um, you might have some programs where, like, Their cross country program is so good that if you're an 800 meter runner, you're sort of like stretching yourself a little thin, trying to do cross country. And then you may be on like kind of the development squad, so to speak, if you're going to do it. But, uh, yeah, I think it's not too uncommon that you have that, that crossover. I didn't have a lot of friends who, um, or teammates, I should say, and friends who, uh, weren't doing cross country and track that were also doing the distance events and on the track side of things.
1: Yeah, what's the longest distance event in cross country in
0: college? So for D3 it was 8k is what we would do. I think there might have been a meet here or there where they'd have a 10k option, but D3 is pretty much 8k for the men um and 6k for the women. And then uh the D1 is where I think they focus more on 10k and then they'll do like they'll do some shorter distance stuff from time to time, but their national championships going to be built off a 10k course so every team is kind of Peaking for that, I guess, is the way to look at it. Okay,
1: so how does someone go from running 8k, and you know, then going and breaking, you know, the American and the world record in the hundred miler? <laughs> like, how, how does that transition happen? Like, how long after college uh, did you decide to start running longer distances? Yeah.
0: Well, it was interesting. I mean, I heard about ultramarathon running. I think at the very end of high school, when my cross country coach told me about Dean Carnassus. and at the time, I think he was planning some ridiculous, like three hundred mile continuous run or something like that. And I just remember thinking that how absurd that was. You know, I was <laughs> at that point in my life. I don't think I was aware of anything beyond a marathon. Uh, I ended up reading some books about ultra runners in college. I want to say, like either my junior or senior year. So I would have been in my early 20s, like 21, 22 years old. And I remember thinking to myself, well, now that I have like a better understanding of the the sport, why we do what we do, and had a little bit of a better opportunity to really experience, I think, the full battery of different types of workouts and the way they can be structured, I started uh, recognizing, well, which ones do I look forward to? Which ones are ones that I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to love it type of a scenario, and then everything in between. And I mean, the long run on Sundays would always kind of stick out to me as the one that I was more or less looking forward to the most or the one that had the most curiosity around it for me. So uh, when I read some of those ultra running books, I uh, told myself I was like, well, I'm going to do one of these at some point in my life. But my thought was probably that I would uh, you know, build up to the marathon through my 20s and then maybe do an ultra marathon in my 30s if I felt like I had exhausted myself in some of the Olympic distance stuff. And and that was sort of where my head was at at the time. As fate would have it, I finished college and I sort of stepped away from speed work for a while for the most part and just started building volume. Uh, I was hitting pretty high volume in college by the end. I think I'd worked up to where in the summers anyway, my final summer, I think I was hitting close to 90 miles a week, 80, 90. And then I was maintaining 70 to 80 miles per week during the seasons that, that final year. So like after college, I started building up to be running like cont- pretty consistently hundred mile weeks. Uh, and some of that just was di- like, I sort of stepped away from speed work, as I said, and that probably helped free up some training load availability and lower the injury risk to some degree. Uh, and that's where I sort of started getting interested in longer stuff. And I did a few marathons sort of with, I would say kind of back in the napkin type training protocol, uh, <laughs> versus a real structured, like, you know, I mean, that's one thing I've always because I got it I ended up getting it ultra marathoning a lot earlier than I thought so I always do wonder like had I what would it be like to actually go through a thorough like training block for a marathon race it and then do it a couple more times and really try to fine-tune it because that's something I kind of bypassed I sort of jumped past the marathon and got into ultra running because one summer I was looking at races to try to target in the fall and was thinking about a marathon. And then I came across this 50 miler in Southeast Wisconsin. And at the time, I didn't even know there were ultra marathons in Wisconsin. (laughs) So this one actually happened to be within like 60, 90 minutes or so of the house I was, the place I was living at the time. So I was like, oh, you know what? Maybe um, maybe that'd be a fun thing to do. I was 24 at the time. So I was like, I'm going to do this. Then I'll go back to like whatever happens to be interest, interest me, uh, whether it be doing some like uh, like open cross-country track meets and stuff like that, training for a marathon. That was where my mind was kind of at. I figured I'd do it, check it out, and then maybe revisit again when I'm in my 30s. Did that race. Uh, total different experience from what I had been exposed to from a racing standpoint, just because you, know, you get up to 50 miles and now you're in like a very different intensity realm than you would be. Um, the way I describe ultra marathons versus say something that's more like in the moderate to higher intensity realm is when you make a decision to do something whether it be like a a move or a pacing tactic you have all the time in the world to think about it and then if it turns out it was a bad idea all the time in the world to dwell on it and kick yourself in the foot and 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 try to so you're fighting this mental battle to kind of stay positive correct the mistake as best as possible then carry forward and not worry about it whereas racing a 5k you got to make the decision so fast that by the time you make a decision and go with it, you don't really have a whole lot of opportunity to second guess yourself until after the race. So it's like a totally different mental thing. Uh, And that was really interesting to me. So I think it maybe leaned into some of my curiosity a little more than some of the shorter distance races had in the past. And uh, by the time that same time, the following year, I was all in on ultra marathons. I think I did 350 milers in about a nine-week span at the end of 2011. And at that point, I was convinced that ultras were what I wanted to focus on. And from essentially 2012 onward, that's what I've been peaking for uh, since.
1: Yeah, did you say you did 350 milers in a nine-week span or a nine-month span?
0: Nine-week, yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I did, but, like. I heard that wrong. I was like, "No, you didn't do it in a nine week." Holy cow! The, That's the funny crazy. Thing
0: is, <laughs> at the time, I thought it was like relatively conservative because one of my introductions to ultra marathons was hearing about this guy Michael Wardian, who I'm sure you've heard of, and um, he was doing not just. Fifty miler's every month. He was doing them every weekend, if not more. And then he'd oftentimes have these like crazy scenarios where he would do a race on Saturday and then be in a different state doing another race the the following day. Uh, and I actually met him at the JFK fifty mile in two thousand eleven, and he was like, "Oh yeah, I am gonna." Well, first of all, I asked him what he did to taper. I was just like trying to learn at the time. I was like, "What did you do for taper?" and he's like oh you know i took it kind of easy on thursday and friday <laughs> leading into the saturday <laughs> race and he was like build to chase the course record that year so it was like this build up to this race and he's like on a two day taper and then he was going to like like scoot out of there afterwards to go back to his hometown because they had this like 5k uh um fundraiser type thing they would do and they, ha- they i think they offered prize money and it, it was i think i believe it was like him and his wife or him and one of his like uh, friends that were putting it on. So he's like, if I win it, then the prize money can go to the charity versus to whoever wins it. So I'm going to go there and try to win that 5k the day after running this, this 50 miler. So for me, I think like there was a lot of openness in terms of kind of how you go about it. It was also the sports grown so much since then too. Now this last decade of ultra marathoning, it's just continually gone up year after year to the point now where you can't really do that in any meaningful way and expect it to be something where you're performing at a high enough caliber to probably compete on most competitive courses. If you go to some of the more moderate or light, lightly competitive fields, sure. You can go and run 350 milers in a nine week time frame and, uh, and, and maybe win them all or, uh, or have good days. But now it's like, you got to pick one and really put your efforts in it. Cause if you don't, someone else is, and then, uh, then you're going to end up wondering what would have happened if you would have, uh, kind of giving it a little more attention. So the sport has grown to the point now where I think it's getting closer to what we see in the marathon where you don't have guys and gals doing like six or eight races, sometimes 10 more races per year, where they're really redlining. You know, they might do that many races, but a lot of them are going to be kind of like just highly structured long runs and ways to practice the race day preparation and things like that. And they're probably going to peak for closer to two or three two or three big races per year where they're really expecting themselves to kind of like wring themselves dry and then give themselves a, a natural off season afterwards. Yeah, and I even, you know,
1: I recommend that to our, our recreational runner uh, population. Uh, many of the listeners, you know, who are going to be listening to this, uh, you know, I do see people get like way too race happy. So, you know, no matter <laughs> if you're a professional or you're doing it for fun, if you're like Zach said, redlining and you're taking your body to a race effort, um you know your results are gonna uh be affected by that so um it's good to to see that you know those things are similar and you know i guess segueing to like the professional athlete realm like at what point in this journey did you say like oh this is what i want to do or was that like always a goal or a dream of yours to be like a professional runner
0: no i would i would say like my dreams of being a professional athlete in any capacity ended in like seventh or eighth grade when I realized that it just wasn't likely in any in any sport. So uh, you couldn't dunk uh, the ball, <laughs> right? Exactly. You know, when you're five foot six and you're you're not fast and you can't jump high, you're probably not going to go to the NBA. So it's like that one's off the table right out the gate. And um, yeah, so I never really had any aspirations of being a professional athlete. I you know I went to school academic first. In fact, I went to Stevens Point for. For the education side of things before first and foremost and decided to do track and cross country once i decided there and met with a coach and thought like hey if i'm going to be here and running anyway maybe it'd be fun to structure it a little bit and uh yeah so i had no ambitions during college or even after college when i began what was supposed to be my career of teaching um it i guess it was a career just was a little shorter than i expected uh i started ultra running my first ultra ultra marathon, I guess was technically when I was still in college. I finished my teaching certifications uh and then I graduated midway through the school year, so I did some long term subbing positions for the remainder of that year and then ultimately ended up going back to school to pick up more teaching certifications so I'd have like more options in terms of what content I could cover and it was during that kind of grad school phase where I was getting the extra certifications that i uh that I did my first ultra marathon. So I got my first full-time teaching job that following year. And that's when I really started kind of getting into ultra running as a as a sport that I was like, okay, I'm going to really see what I can do here. But it was 2013 in December when I first ran a race that put me in a position that I think was like the door started opening to start thinking about what is it like to have either a second job career with you know professional sport um and coaching versus just like kind of teaching for my main income and then racing as a hobby and you know over about a couple of years, I just kind of kept acquiring some results and kind of building up my 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 personal one on one coaching programs and things like that, and uh ultimately got to a point where I think it was two thousand and fifteen I was teaching for my fourth full year and uh I had a co-teacher who was a really interesting guy. He was, he was actually a professional drummer, and uh, his wife was enrolled in the PhD program at UW Madison. So they moved from Southern California to the Madison area, and I was had just gotten hired to teach at Middleton Cross Plains at one of their schools. And he comes in with like, you know, he had he was teaching special ed in Southern California. So when his his wife decided to get her PhD uh, he's like, well, I have to have a job because she's going to be, you know, doing the school thing right now. And we need to have more income than just uh, the stipend that she's going to get for that. And, uh, so he's like, well, what, what's available. And he had a special ed license and those are pretty, pretty universally like useful for school districts. If you have one of those, you're going to probably get hired. So he applied and ended up in the same school as I did. And so he was a little bit more, uh, I would say traveled and like kind of, uh, you know, take the opportunities when they present themselves type of a mentality. And he asked me, he's like, I just come back from racing the Desert Solstice Track Invitational in 2015. I had a pretty good race there, I think around 11 hours and 40 minutes for a hundred miles. And he said, he's like, when are you just going to like start doing that as a profession? <laughs> and in my mind at the time, I was like, well, this is a small sport. This isn't like, you know, football or basketball or baseball where you sign this big millions of dollar contracts and then you're you're good is like, you know, the sport was still growing and there were, weren't a ton of opportunities yet for full-time athletes. And uh, I told him, I was like, you know what, I th- I think I could probably make that work given the right scenario, especially now that my coaching business has been growing too. I said, I'll probably teach for another year after this though. And and, and basically every day after that, he would just kind of like prod me like, hey, when are you going to just go chase that dream? <laughs> so at the end of the year, I actually did uh, end up partnering up with uh some brands that were, uh, you know, really looking forward to supporting me and then had my coaching business where I wanted to be. And it was getting to a point where I kind of did have to decide between giving either teaching my full attention, at least during the school year, or giving the coaching and training and racing of my full attention. And if I tried to do them both, I was probably going to be like a little bit suboptimal at all. So my thought at the time was, if I can, if I if I completely belly flop here, then I can always go back to teaching. Um, I'm duly certified and regular at and special ed as well, so like it's pretty pretty convenient set of certifications to have. So in my mind, I was like, okay, well, let's just take this one year at a time, and you know, if it ends up not working out, then I'll start teaching again, or even if it does work out, maybe I can go back to teaching. That's something I can do when I'm well past my running prime. But what I wanted to avoid was getting into like my mid forties and then thinking back to myself, why didn't I take advantage of that opportunity when it was there? Now I can't go back and do it. So that was sort of the real kind of catalyst there, I think was that mindset of, uh, you know, this one is the short term potential. The other one's got a much longer lifespan if needed. And, uh, yeah, and here we are in 2022 and still, still heading in the right direction. So yeah. Still so taking many, it one year at a time, but it's... yeah. How many years <laughs>
1: has that been from that time period you made the jump?
0: So that would have been, uh, the that would have been 2015, 16 school year, I believe. So okay. then I moved to California after that school year, the summer of 2016, and that's when I would have been. I, I sent I signed my first full like professional contract at the start of 2016, and that uh, or actually no, I'm I'm a year off on that. I think I did. Uh, I did Desert Solstice 2015, my first year in California. So it would have been the 2014-15 school year when I uh, stepped away. Summer of 15, I moved to California and uh, then did Desert Solstice that December. So whether it be mid-2015 mid was kind of the time I finished teaching and, and headed west, so to speak. So right, about so, seven years, I right. guess. Yeah, seven.
1: about seven years. Okay, cool. And uh, you just let it like slip like so easily like oh yeah i did a 100 miler you know 11 hours <laughs> like i you know that honestly for so many that just sounds crazy right it it's it, like you, you can't even think about it like for most runners you know thinking about like a marathon is a lot right and mm-hmm. to train like i just went back for seconds uh for the marathon distance it took me 5 years to go back for seconds it was a much more pleasurable experience now that I know a whole lot more about running and just wasn't winging it. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. at the back of the napkin, like you say, um, but you know, and I saw this question on your Instagram page and I was like, Oh, this is kind of cool. Like, um, you know, what do you, what are your thoughts about? Like when people are like, you run a hundred miles, like that's crazy. Like, is like, are we as humans like meant to run a hundred miles?
0: yeah it's a good question i think uh my answer to that is humans are meant to travel 100 miles running is an awfully ambitious way to do that so uh, i think of just like the way that our like mechanics are kind of designed and i like yeah, a lot of walking maybe slow jogging over a few days to cover 100 miles is probably not that uncommon for kind of the human the human body but when you find yourself trying to consolidate that into like a 12-hour time frame or less then it's like you're asking a lot out of yourself and uh the days prior you learn pretty quickly like okay that was probably past the margin of diminishing returns from a health standpoint at least <laughs> and you're doing it more for like you know the seek of adventure and in the way i look at it kind of now is it's like with all our modern comforts i do think the human body craves Very big challenges, and if you're going to be happy, you're going to give it that opportunity. So whether you're forced to do that by essentially surviving outside, or you know surviving in a more primitive environment, or if you're going to do that by showing up to an ultra marathon and covering 100 miles or whatever effort, there's tons of ways to move your body and physically express yourself. But I do think that kind of pursuit of like really pushing yourself to the limit occasionally is a valuable thing to just create an environment in which you're kind of content with life and not more or less depressed <laughs> in my opinion. So I guess the answer to the question would be the human body is capable of running a hundred miles from an optimal health standpoint. You're probably better off not doing it at least to the frequency that most ultramarathoners marathoners do. Um, but at the end of the day, we probably do a lot of things that aren't, totally optimal and that's just kind of part of life to a degree too so um the other way i'd say it like sitting around on a couch doing nothing is probably way less healthy than running 100 miles in the way i do it so i'm probably taking a step forward from like a really like a a really suboptimal lifestyle but if i wanted to just focus on like health fitness longevity and things like that i would run but i would not run ultra marathons
1: (laughs) yeah all right maybe walk one yeah (laughs) time to take a real quick break. And before I say any more, I truly hope the message so far today has benefited you either from a running or health standpoint. Staying in line with that theme, I wanted to take this opportunity to share with you a brand new exciting partnership with Naboso, which is a company that is dedicated to redefining what's underneath your feet so you can feel more to move better as a runner. From a movement prep before your runs to foot recovery after those hard speed workouts or long runs, Naboso's Texture Products lets your senses guide you and connects you to your exercises and your running by strengthening your feet and helping you recover from your runs. Want to learn more on how you as a runner can activate, strengthen, and recover from running? Listen to episode 116 on this podcast to learn from Naboso founder, podiatrist, and human movement specialist, Dr. Emily Splickle herself. We had a value-packed episode learning how she took her conventional podiatric medical degree and combined it with years of experience and expertise in human movement and sensory science to found Naboso. Dr. Emily shared with us the importance of foot stability for runners, what is sensory stimulation, the benefits of toe spacers, and barefoot training for running. There's so much value in this episode, so be sure to go back and queue up episode 116 on the Healthy Runner podcast to listen to during your next long run to learn more about Naboso. I personally have always battled a mild case of plantar fasciitis and have been using the neuroball to get out those hard-to-reach trigger points in my deep foot muscles that foot rollers just frankly don't reach and get to. I have also been a big fan of the toe spacers for the past 10 years, but have yet to find a pair that is actually flexible- as comfortable and that I can tolerate for hours to help realign my toes and stretch the small muscles in my foot. This has been clutch, honestly, for my claw toes that I have and helping my plantar fasciitis. I just love doing 10 minutes of elevation with my neboso splay on after a long run. Neboso's recovery socks are like your traditional running compression socks, but they are the first ever that stimulate your nervous system and enhance movement with their patented textured surface on the inside of the sock. Matter of fact, as I'm reading this right now, I have on my Neboso Splay toe spacers and I couldn't imagine my feet tolerating the hard half marathon training I am doing right now without some of these great products at Naboso. Learn more about how Naboso's texture products connect you to your exercises and your running by strengthening your feet and helping you recover from your runs since you're a part of our healthy runner community you will get 20 percent off all of your orders just use the code HealthyRunner runner during checkout when placing your order using the special link we have in our show notes go ahead and give Noboso a try and your feet will thank you for it i know mine already have now let's get back into this episode for those that are considering, you know, that next challenge, uh, and they've run, you know, a couple of marathons or, um, you know, they're thinking about getting into the ultra world, you know, do you, you know, what does it really take to kind of make that jump from marathon to ultra marathon? And if you don't mind, if, if, if we have some, you know, beginner listeners they are like, I don't even know what an ultra marathon is. Do you mind just kind of describing the different distances or events that are common that someone could, uh, could run?
0: Yeah. So if you just look on say like ultra sign up is the, is the page that has a lot of the events kind of all cluster together, it, you're going to find a ton of options at like the 50 K 50 mile or 80 K, um, 100K, 100 k, a hundred mile. And then you're going to have a lot of options in these timed events where it's like 6 hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, and then it gets 48, days are also like kind of the standards for those. Um, That's a little bit more, I would say, North American. Uh, Over in Europe, the racing distances are much less precise because they like specific routes or uh, there'll be like a popular loop or trail or something like that. And it happens to be like, say, 106 miles. They're not going to say oh, well, let's find a way to shorten this to a hundred. So it's exact. So you get a lot less precision, I think across the board, but they generally line up to kind of match those ones that I just mentioned from the majority standpoint. Then you also have like other areas of the sport too, where there's like stage racing, like marathon to where you're like, running on like certain amount of distance each day for uh, a certain number of days or, uh um, FKTs, they call them, or fastest known times where it's not in a place where you can really host a designated uh, event because of permitting and things like that. So uh, the the route is very popular. So you'll have people go out there and see how fast and document it. And then you compare your efforts to others from history or that will eventually target it and things like that. So it really is a wide range of different options from 50K up to like, it's almost endless. There's this race over in New York that happens every year uh, it's on a 0.58 mile loop and you can run for 16 hours of the day. And it's, you try to get to 3,100 miles. So the fastest, the fastest time on that route is like, I think like 41 days, it might be a little under 41 days. So it's like, I mean, you get that absurd. You have (laughs) fastest known times that are as in depth as running across the country or a guy, Dave Proctor just ran across, he did a transcontinental run in Canada just recently. And it's like, yeah you get i mean there's there's as far as your imagination can take you is basically where ultra marathoning ends, and i uh, I think as the sport grows, we're gonna continue to see that kind of get tested <laughs> yeah,
1: and is there any um uh, you know general principles or tips that you would recommend if someone was going to oh, kind of yeah. make that jump from the marathon
0: mm-hmm. yeah no, sorry, I didn't answer the specific no, question that's okay. yeah so i i think just in 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 route of answering that, I would say like I think the marathon is still probably one of the more difficult races out there, despite it not being the longest, the ultra running community. I think some people like following the ultra marathon community loosely, they get this idea of like, you know, if I, let's say I was working in an office and I went in, told everyone I ran hundred miles in 30 hours, they're going to be like, Whoa, you ran hundred miles you know, they won't even pay attention to the 30 hour side of things. And then, you know, my coworker could come and say, Oh, I just won the local 5k in 1348. And people be like, oh, cool. Good for you. That's a nice, I, did they give you a medal? It's like, the, the guy just ran a sub 14-minute 5K. <laughs> <laughs> it was way more impressive than a 30-hour 100-mile. But uh, yeah, so it's, uh, I think like in terms of people who've gone through thorough marathon training programs, they could show up at a lot of ultra marathons and be just fine if they needed to. Uh, it would be the hardest part for them would just be kind of getting ready to like manage what's going to come to them. Cause the big challenge with ultra marathoning is you have this huge gap usually between your longest long run and the distance you're actually going to cover that day. So if you're doing like a hundred miler for the first time, you know, you're, you might be looking at a scenario where you're going to run 50 miles further than you've ever run before. If you've done a 50 miler. some people even skip that. (laughs) So uh, I think it's mental is what people should be concerned about in terms of the transitioning is this practicing this mindset of like, things are going to go wrong they will not go according to plan entirely. Uh, You can have races that go about as seamlessly as possible, but even those there's going to be some hiccups in there and it's more about hitting those points and then saying, okay, that happened. What's my best path forward now? Let's take that and focus on that. So you got to be forward thinking. If you start thinking behind, uh, you're going to ruin yourself mentally and then you're not going to make it to the finish line. If you start thinking too far ahead, If you're like, okay, we're four miles into this thing. I only got 96 more to go. Let's let's keep trucking along. You're probably going to burn yourself out mentally and find yourself making some hard decisions as to whether you're going to finish or not at some point in that race. So there's a lot of chunking involved where these trail races tend to be a little more convenient for it because you have aid stations that are usually spread out somewhere between like five to maybe six miles. So you can always just kind of say, okay, next goal is to the next aid station and then kind of take it one step at a time from there. Um, from a training standpoint, I think the, the way I like to look at it is I think all the workouts that you would do for like a marathon or any Olympic distance event are still on the table. It's just an order of operations thing. So it's like, when do I do them while preparing for an ultra marathon versus when would I do these if I was training for a 5k, 10k half marathon or marathon? So for me and the folks I work with, we're still going to do short intervals. We're still going to do long intervals and tempo runs. Uh, You know, we're going to still do long runs and everything. We're just going to position things in a way where we're working on any individual weaknesses uh, and things that are important that are unspecific to the race intensity first and get ourselves closer to doing more specific stuff when we're in kind of that final phase of the training plan. So since we're, if we're talking just entering like a 50 K, you can basically train like that, like you would for a marathon, unless it's like this crazy trail. In which case, you know, sometimes you'll get like the world record for 50K is like well under three hours. Um, you get some really competitive 50K courses like the Speed Goat 50K that's at like 10,000 feet and it's got 10,000 feet of climbing and sending on top of it. Super technical terrain and spots. It, winning time is going to be like from low five hours. So it's like we're talking about a, literally a doubling in time out there. So with ultra marathons, I usually warn people look at the course and uh think of it from a duration standpoint versus a distance standpoint because like you can take take the most competitive 100 miler in the world ultra trail mont blanc this year's winning time uh by killian journey was like somewhere in the 19 hour range and i mean it was a world-class effort and you know i'll get on a track and run 100 miles in under 12 hours it's like the distance is the same essentially but it couldn't be any more different of an event from an environment standpoint to a duration standpoint. So you got to think of it in that regard. But then like, yeah, the other thing that maybe stands out is like a lot of times people will be getting a little more creative with the long run. Whereas with a with a marathon buildup, you're probably gonna do one long run per week. You might do like a deload every like fourth or third or fourth week or something like that, just to keep it sustainable. And then start embedding some marathon pace work into it near the end. For ultra marathons, rather than embedding marathon pace work into it you're you might just try to like add a second one or even a third one at times where you're going to do like a couple or a few like three or four hour sessions in subsequent days and kind of block those together and that's going to be kind of your kind of cornerstone workouts at the end of the plan that are going to be very specific to the intensity that you're going to be doing on race day it's going to allow you to practice by that certainly by that third day what it's like to kind of move for a significant amount of time on tired legs, which is probably more of a mental, uh, mental, like building a uh, process than a physiological development thing. But, um, but yeah, that's the, probably the biggest difference. I think like the other thing too, it's just like the, like what I've been talking about is the terrain is so variant in terms of what course you do. So, you know, most marathons you think like, you know, even if you get a hilly marathon, uh, or a fast marathon versus a slow marathon, it's, if you looked at that map stretched out, it wouldn't look that much different. Whereas like I was saying before, if you look at the elevation map on a track ultra marathon is a flat line versus something like UTMB or Western States. It's going to be like ups and downs all across that profile. Uh, so it's very different from that standpoint. It's almost different sports all kind of under this umbrella that we call ultra marathon.
1: Yeah. And you, and you prefer more
0: of the flatter stuff, right? And you've done them on a track
1: before. Hmm.
0: Yeah. I like to be able to run the whole time if possible. So <laughs> yeah. you, know, you don't get that option when there's 20% incline. So. <laughs> right. Right. Wow. Uh, and I get like runners who are like,
1: you know, I, I can barely do my speed work on the track. You know, I can, I couldn't imagine doing a long run on a track. Like you're literally running a hundred miles on a track. Like how do you keep your mental mindset focused?
0: Yeah. It's, it's a lot different than the trails. I'll say that. And I've been fortunate that I've had a lot of experiences in terms of being able to see these different events at various distances. So I've got an idea of kind of like how they, all or how they differ from one another. And, And the track is, you know, the benefit is you've got no obstacles. And if you, you're controlling everything essentially at that point, outside of a few things, like there aren't, events that are structured yet in a way where they're super conducive to the fast end of the field in the sense that, you know, you have a 400 meter track and you got 20, 30, 40 runners out there. The passer goes around. I've done hundred mile races where I'm in lane two basically the whole time because you're just passing people like consistently if they're doing like 24 hours or 48 hours or something like that. And I'm more in the 12 hour range. Um So like, you have this clear passage more or less though, in terms of you're not worried about tripping. You're not worried about taking a wrong turn. You've seen the whole course after the first couple of minutes. <laughs> so <laughs> like from a obstacle logistics standpoint, it's super easy. If I can, if I need something, I ask for it. If my crew messes it up, it's a mistake that can be corrected in less than two minutes. So there's really no consequence there. Like there would be, if I go through an aid station and screw up what I'm supposed to bring, I might not get that chance to fix that for hour plus. Um, The mental side, though, you do have to deal with a ton of monotony, obviously. And that's the part that I think deters people from those sort of pursuits. Uh, For me, I think like I probably was fortunate in the sense that the first track 100 miler I did went really well. And I was probably, it was early in my career too. I was the second official 100 miler I finished. So there was a lot of ignorance, a lot of uh, just like not really being totally aware of what I was getting myself into that I think put me in a position where I just couldn't think too far ahead because I didn't have the experience to be able to do it so I just went in there with a goal and kind of stayed focused on it and I had like kind of not intentionally but I had a really good build up to it in the sense that I did a couple 50 milers that uh, went well enough that I got really good training stimuluses out of them but not so well that I felt like I needed a full off season afterwards so I was probably physically as prepared for a hundred miles as I have been for that one. And then that experience was just so positive in my mind that I've had like this, this really good outlook or positive outlook on the track as a venue to race versus having a terrible experience the first time and then just kind of swearing it off. Um, from there, I think it just becomes like an an exercise in almost meditation where you are looking for ways to sort of distract your mind from the environment you're in, whether that be picturing yourself in a different environment, uh, just visualization techniques, or what I've started to do more recently is when I'm doing long runs, I'll put them on a track and then I'll just envision like, what is it like to run like a 30 mile section of this race and just kind of go through those mental paces. So then on race day, I kind of have that dress rehearsal in my head that I can sort of set on autopilot more or less. But, you know, there are lows for sure. And those lows get a little more, um, maybe a little more discouraging because it's very clear when you slow down or speed up or maintain pace when you can see your splits every 400 meters. Whereas if I hit a rough patch in a trail race and end up hiking up a hill a little slower than I had would have been able in optimal positions, I don't look at the clock necessarily and think like, oh, I really am... I'm really falling apart here. You're know. you if you're kind of hidden from that to some degree. Whereas if I'm targeting say uh, a minute and 40 seconds for a lap or something like that, and then I'm coming across consistently hitting a minute 42, I get that negative reinforcement every time I look at that. And you got to be really careful with those negative reinforcements. So coming up with strategies where you're not necessarily like clock staring all day and preserving that mental capacity is definitely something you got to think about on the track. And and at the end of the day, it's not going to be for everyone. I mean, a lot of people come into the ultra running sport because they get burnt out on things like roads and tracks. So, the the, the idea right. of going out there to the environment in which they're they're sick of and doing it for just an extended period of time isn't super appealing. And the reason they're enjoying ultra running is because they get out in these cool destinations and they can get in a little bit more of a kind of a, a flow out on the trails, I guess. And that's what's uh, really making it making their why kind of resonate, I guess.
1: Yeah, no, that's super impressive though, and I think I just saw. Like, did you literally just do another hundred mile race this past weekend?
0: Yeah, I ran the Brazos Bend hundred mile on Saturday. So, what is it Thursday today? So, I'm I guess I'm about five or six days out from that. Yeah, and how's that recovery going? Really good. I actually think I recovered quicker than most hundred milers I've done. It was it was a bit of a unique build up because I had uh I had a I've been so fortunate with injuries. I had a battery of injuries early on in college as I kind of went through that growing pains of increasing volume and adding like higher quality speed work to my training protocol. But since then, really, I've been very, very few issues that have prevented me from getting to a starting line. And then anything that's happened for the most part, just been like, all right, I need essentially a deload week or something like that. But I I managed to like uh, partially tear ligaments on both sides of my right ankle at the end of last year, Um, recovered from that and then did a race and then had it the outside of that, those ligaments on the outside of my right ankle flared back up earlier this year. And we're just kind of like problematic for about the first half of the year. I ended up uh, shutting things down at the end of June and most of July, and just kind of essentially redoing the rehab for that. And, uh, Built back up for this race. So I built up in a little bit more of a conservative manner just because I wanted to make sure I got through like all the different intensities and tested myself enough to be able to trust the ankle, but not so much that I end up kind of having another setback with it. Um, and then ultimately do a race and confirm, okay, it can hold up during a 100 miler. And then after the 100 miler, it's going to recover and feel the same as the left ankle would. Because, uh, you know, my fear was if I do this 100 mile race, what happens if it's not like totally injured, but it's way worse off than the other one. Do I have to consider like what that, what that actually means for next year? But so there's a lot of like, I think just confirmation in this race versus, uh, what maybe I would normally right. do leading into a hundred miler, but yeah, the recovers. So I guess maybe the way to yep. look at it is I probably wasn't in a position to really exert myself the way I would when I ran like eleven nineteen in, in 2019 at the Pettit center, um, which, Just means that I'm probably not as beat up after that training block and that race, which which also is going to make the recovery process a little smoother. But in most cases, you're going to have some soreness for two or three days. Then that usually kind of resides. And then the next step is like kind of just feeling like you have the mental and energy levels back to where you want them to actually be able to think about running again. And then I usually like to give myself kind of two weeks where structure can be completely eliminated if needed. And then by the third week, I'll start running again. Usually in a more structured manner, and once that's uh once that uh kind of starts up, I start kind of building back into it. But I'm also paying attention to things like, you know, both or some of the more overuse type things like tendonitis things or things that will usually flare up maybe a little bit after the fact. So that first four weeks after hundred mile is a little bit more of a sensitive time, I think, in terms of just really confirming that your body's ready to go through that next build up in and uh uh race eventually. So. Um, being less than a week out, I'm pretty confident that I'm ahead of schedule based on previous experiences compared to this one. That's great. And I think you bring up a
1: really good point as far as after the race, because I do wind up seeing a lot of injured runners that they didn't have pain during the training cycle. They didn't even have pain at the race or at the marathon. Mm-hmm. But a week after, two weeks after, three weeks after, you yeah. know, going on easy runs, they started feeling this pain. And you know, the recovery aspect, I think, is so important. And there's so many runners who are probably listening to this that are always so anxious to get back on the horse, so to speak, or you know, pride wise, maybe it it proves that you're in more conditioned. So it is great hearing from a professional like yourself, like how serious you take the recovery aspect as, you know, you take it as serious as the training itself and respecting that your body does need to heal and recover both physically and mentally, um, for you to be able to, you know, do what you do in that next training block. So it's always, always good to hear. And it is a common, um, you know, mistake I see in a lot of runners of kind of getting back into things too soon. And was that ankle, um, you know, the partial tear you had in the ligaments, was that due to a traumatic ankle sprain? Like you had one incident where you rolled it or was it just over time running on uneven surfaces that you wound up getting pain and irritation of the ligaments?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really interesting because I have rolled my ankle in the past a few times where it was very easy to pinpoint like, oh yeah, I just completely turned it over and now it's swollen up and I probably got to take a couple days off uh, before more depending on how bad it was. But this time was weird. It was more of just overuse in the sense that I was out on a long run and I sort of felt it starting to get a little more like a little more achy near the end than than the other side. And then when I stopped, it really started to kind of flare up and swell a little bit. And that's when I was like, okay, I did something to it, but it was hard to pinpoint exactly when and how I, I know the exact run. It started behaving that way, but whether, you know, the likelihood was that it was everything leading up to that was put it on the brink and then that run itself was like kind of the the part where it finally exposed itself. Um yeah and then I I went through the whole process of rehabbing it. You know, I got an MRI so I could confirm that there was what was going on in there and it as it was kind of funny the, the doctor was like, Yeah, it's pretty messy in there, but it's not necessarily anything I wouldn't expect given what you do. <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. So So,
1: that just means the cartilage is probably a little worn, um, (laughs) you know, surrounding the bones. And yeah, it sounds like you had what we call like chronic ankle instability, essentially, where, Mm -hmm. you know, you've sprained your ankle or rolled it, you know, multiple times in the past and, and you have this kind of instability. So I think that's a really good kind of segue into kind of our, our next topic is, you know, how do you kind of keep your feet healthy? Or what are Mm -hmm. some tips that you can share with runners um, if they've had ankle sprains in the past, or if they're looking to prevent ankle sprains?
0: Yeah, no, it's a great question. And from my understanding, like the stronger you can get your feet, ankles and lower legs, the more you're going to take the load off of those supporting areas, like the tendons and ligaments that Um, Can potentially get aggravated or partially torn or fully torn in some cases. So for me, you know, given what I had, I knew my next move it was going to be. I just need to make my lower legs and feet and ankles really, really strong. You think of running, you know, there's impact forces that are going to really be the limiting factor in a lot of cases in terms of how much volume and and training load you can get away with. It's why we see like pro cyclists, triathletes, and swimmers doing much higher volumes than say pro marathoners. but that first initial point of impact is going to be that foot touching the ground. So, you know, that foot touches the ground and ideally those muscles tense up and kind of that tensing of the muscles is going to support that landing and keep that load from ending up in areas that it doesn't belong or overstressing tendons and ligaments Um, also can preserve things up the chain too. So like, And this can get into kind of like uh, a train or footwear question too of like, should I wear soft shoes or firm shoes or, you know, something in between. And it's like, well, a firm shoe or a lower profile shoe is going to really, really exercise those muscles in the lower legs. So um, it's going to benefit your point of impact in a way that you're probably going to land a little more precise it's going to engage those lower leg muscles more. So it's likely going to kind of take some of that impact load away from what could potentially end up further, like in the knees and hips if you're not running with great form. Uh, But you're also working that area a lot harder too. So you've got to be kind of mindful of just like if I was going to do a strength program and my goal was to get to a certain point there, I wouldn't go there that first day and be like, all right, well, my goal is to, you know, let's say bench press 300 pounds. And, uh, I can currently last time I bench pressed, I could do 180, but I'm just going to put 300 pounds on the bar and see what happens. You got to be kind of careful with that too, where like those there's muscles down there that need to get caught up in a lot of cases. And, you know, regardless of whether you, whether a low profile shoe or a maximal cushion shoe or something in between, we are putting a cast on our feet. So, um, that cast allows us to do more than we'd be able to do when we don't have that shoe there, which is good, but, permanence with that means that we're also going to likely atrophy that area to some degree. So I think like doing exercises, strength exercises that kind of keep those areas strong, um, as well as doing some running in low profile or barefoot scenarios where you start very gradually and kind of incrementally add more to it are all really good strategies to kind of keep those lower legs, feet, ankles strong in a way where like, when you do find yourself in a situation where you're running on uneven terrain or you know running a little bit longer than you have you have the structure there to be able to support that so you don't end up picking up some of those overuse injuries and um the act of doing is pretty direct so like you know doing some grass strides and on the inside of the track or something like that after speed work is a good thing that i think to add into your protocol Uh, like I said, maybe like if you're, if you're really used to wearing built up shoes historically and you want to strengthen your feet through running a little bit, getting a firmer or lower profile pair of shoes, but starting out really slow, like maybe wear them, walk around in them for a while first. And then, you know, do your shortest, easiest run of the week in them and just listen to your body the next day and see where the soreness is there. And if there's some soreness there, it's not a bad sign. It's just, you know you worked that area so you need to give it some some rest so don't put those low profile shoes back on don't go out and do barefoot sprinting or something like that that next day just like in the weight room like if i'm bench pressing i'm not going to go back to the next day and bench press th- th- that following day because i need that area to heal up first before i can kind of take that next step forward and just really treating it that way um is good and then if you end up in a situation like i was where you actually have the injury and you need to use some strength work and some non-running related stuff to kind of strengthen the area. I really like, um, kind of a series of different moves that I, that I just keep in my strength routine now where I'll do, um, bent knee calf raises, straight leg calf raises. I'll take like a resistance band and do like all directions, like in terms of like kind of stretching that band out with my foot. So my foot is getting those muscles worked in a variety of different angles and i'll do like tibialis raises um and that sort of stuff is just going to really kind of exercise those areas to the point where those muscles are just going to get a little stronger over time if you kind of stay consistent with that too so those have been my protocols i guess are the advice I've, i would give yeah and those are
1: those are all great tips uh zach and you know we've definitely uh talked about you know, this on the show before I've shared my personal journey of going from, you know, being a PT who graduated, uh, college being in very rigid custom foot orthotics and being in them for 12 years and finally kind of weaning myself out as well as weaning, you know, my heel drop in my shoe. Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah, I couldn't echo those sentiments enough, uh, that it needs to be gradual and you need to listen to your body. I love the tip on um, actually doing you know, strides after your speed work on the track, on like the straightaways. Um, I haven't actually added that. I I, I need to do that though. Um, but that's a great tip. And I know, I believe uh, you've had Dr. Emily Splickle on your show before. she's yeah. She's been on the uh, podcast, actually Neboso is spo- uh, sponsoring this episode um, of the podcast. But you know, everything that, um, you know, she's talked about and we've talked about how important it is to like activate those intrinsic foot muscles and the short foot exercise, um, you know, is so critical to, like you said, cause I experienced that atrophy of my feet. Like I literally couldn't even move my toes out and I was only like 34 years old and I'm mm-hmm. like, I literally can't move my toes cause the muscles don't actually know how to function because they didn't have to function. Yeah. <laughs> So I've definitely seen those benefits. And another thing um, that I know, you know, you are a big believer in, you know, the lower profile shoes and ultras, but, you know, I wear my ultras, my zero drop for all of my strength training, or if I was home, like during COVID, I did it barefoot um, Mm -hmm. because those benefits of doing your strength training, when you can actually feel the ground and activate those muscles are going to be super helpful. So, you know, sometimes I see you know uh you know runners in the gym with a high stack height shoe Mm -hmm. and i'm like you know you don't need all that cushioning when you're strength training like you actually want to feel the ground and be able to use those smaller foot and ankle muscles because like you said they're gonna really help you in your running they're gonna keep your feet healthy they're gonna prevent you know you from rolling your ankle um so yeah i couldn't agree uh more with those tips. And it sounds like it's really been beneficial for you this last training cycle that you're able to kind of get some of this confidence back that you can, you know, train, train back up to that hundred mile distance. So, you know, that being said, you know, I don't know if you've announced it publicly yet, but if, if you have, you know, would you mind sharing any specific goals that you have or, you know, anything heading into 2023 that Zach Bitter is, uh, eyeing out?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have um, some goals for 2023. I think the big one is to kind of get back to the rep or to kind of the routine I would have been most comfortable with pre-pandemic. So just the way things played out with the pandemic cancellations of races and things like that. And then I always joke around that I didn't time my injury appropriately. I wish I would have just planned it for 2020 because then I could have taken care (laughs) of the pandemic and the ankle injury all at the same time. Um, but typically I like to do like kind of what I say earlier in the show is I'll pick two or three kind of goal races per year where I'm like, my expectations are high for these ones. And then I'll sprinkle in, you know, usually it's between 50 K to hundred K I'll sprinkle in maybe five or so of those that I'm going to be using as kind of tune-up races, long run development type things where I'm going to intentionally kind of hold back a little bit. Um, so during the pandemic and then when I had this injury, I wasn't able to do that. It was like the races I was able to do. I was sort of like just main peak races for the most part. Um, so for 2023, my main goal is to kind of get that protocol back into place. Cause I find that I race better at hundred miles when I kind of have that sort of a uh, trajectory in place. Um, at the moment I have the Avalon 50 mile on the Catalina Island in early January on the schedule. Um, I'll possibly do the U S track and field hundred mile, road championships in early March. If that happens to end up kind of, I'm not sure that's been officially announced as the as the venue yet, but it, historically it has been. So that's kind of where, where I'll probably go. Um, if not there, I'd like to do, there's a race here in Texas called the Rocky Raccoon 100 mile. And um, it's got a really kind of rich history from kind of some legends in the sport testing their limits there. So I'd really like to go there and give that one a good swing in one of these years. So if the road championships don't happen, that would maybe be a fun one to do. Um, Ultimately, one of the bigger goals this year too, or maybe not, this is maybe just a future goal in general versus an absolute for this year is um, when I ran 11 hours and 19 minutes for hundred miles, that was, uh, at least for me, pre-Super Shoe. So, um, you know, I I think like just with the shoe technology where it's at now alone, uh, I can probably get myself under 11 hours with a similar performance. And then with any better performance possibly, you know, get a, a chunk under 11 hours. So that would be another goal of mine this year if uh, the right kind of situation lines up to make a really controlled attempt at a hundred fast 100 miler. Um, yeah. Would that, that.
1: would that be a world record or an American record so, if it's sub
0: 11? Sub, sub 11 would be an American record and sub 1050 would be a world record. So wow. there's kind of, I guess there'd be a kind of two tier goals on that part where like, getting under 11 would be awesome. Getting under ten fifty would be even more awesome, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, of course. Indeed. Um, wow. That's awesome. And yeah, that sounds like you got, you know, you got some good plans, um, up ahead. And, you know, if, if our healthy runner community wanted to follow some of your journey, um, or they wanted to learn more about, you know, your coaching and, um, you know, working with you, where's the best place that, um, our community can connect with you?
0: Yeah, my uh, all my stuff is basically centrally located on my website, which is just zachbitter.com. From there, you can see my coaching options, podcast links, social media links, and all that sort of stuff. So if you want to banter online, I'm most active on Instagram at zachbitter and then on uh, Twitter at zbitter. Awesome. And yeah, a lot of the exercise that you talked about today,
1: I saw you also have videos on your YouTube channel and on your Instagram. Um, so for those that want to check out some of those, uh, ankle exercises that Zach was talking about, and I also big fan, I didn't mention it before, so I got to throw it in there, the soleus strengthening, uh, with the knee yeah. slightly bent, uh, often forgotten about, um, in many runners where they only strengthen their calf muscles with their knee straight. So mm-hmm. I was a, a big fan of that one. Uh, yeah, Zach, thank you so much for your time. This has been uh super cool connecting with you and yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing your, uh, journey and. Uh, what happens in uh, 2023. I appreciate you taking your time out of your day.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks a bunch for having me on.
1: It was great to chat. Yeah. And thank you to the listener, whether you're checking this out uh, during a run right now on the podcast or on the Spark Healthy Runner YouTube channel. I appreciate you guys. As always, let's maintain a strong mind, a strong body, and let's just keep on running. Until next time. Hi, I'm Gigi and I live in Los Angeles, California and thanks to Coach Duane and the Healthy Runner community, last month I completed the New York City Marathon. Coach Duane was exactly what I was looking for after I had knee surgery last year. Not only is he a doctor of physical therapy which helped me immensely, but he's also a certified running coach and a runner himself. His advice was spot on. From the little things, which can be the big things, like what shoes to wear and how to warm up properly, to fueling, which was a huge issue for me. I completed the marathon feeling strong. I never hit a wall. What wall? There was none. All of his advice was right on, and I highly recommend him. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Healthy Runner podcast, where we help you get stronger, run faster, and enjoy lifelong, injury-free running. If you found this content valuable, here's five ways we can help you grow as a runner for free. One, grab a free copy of my Spark Blueprint at learn.sparkhealthyrunner.com. Two, follow my Instagram page at Spark Healthy Runner. Three, join my free group by searching Healthy Runner on Facebook. Four, subscribe to my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash spark healthy runner. Five, leave us a five-star review so we can gain access to more experts in the running field and bring those lessons back to you here. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcast or the follow button on Spotify so you don't miss the next episode of Healthy Runner so you can maintain a strong mind, a strong body, and just keep running. Lastly, if you've been struggling with the constant injury cycle, not eating the right foods for running, or not getting faster as a runner, and you are ready to invest in becoming a lifelong injury-free runner, head to sparkhealthyrunner.com to apply for a one-on-one signature coaching program. Thank you again. I mean it from the bottom of my heart that I appreciate you for listening and sharing this podcast with a running friend who can use the help. Now go and crush your run today. See you next week.